Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll do verses 16 and 17. We'll stand to read those verses in a minute also. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Please be seated. Two power verses can take either one and spend quite a bit of time on preaching them. Spiritual Defiance is the title for this morning. Some of you are familiar with Mordecai. He exercised Old Testament defiance against wicked Haman. The apostles exercised New Testament defiance against Christlessness. In both cases, hell counterattacked. Mordecai was really surprised at what happened with him. And the apostles were ready. And I think the lesson is, and think in a sense I'm sure, is that we are not to be surprised, shocked, or unprepared by Satan's attacks and his counterattacks. We are to expect these things. We are to be ready. And, and that is, to, belonging to that is spiritual defiance. It is not carnal. It's not only natural of us. Um, You know, man is naturally fallen. So we want to be careful of that and make sure that our reaction and our approach to life is more spiritual than carnal. In these two verses, the English translators have used our English conjunction or the word for as a conjunction. It's three times in the Greek, but they're right in, in, in their translation and using it four times just in these two verses. It connects what he's been saying, Paul, in this letter and what he's going to say. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's unashamed of the message that we all are entrusted with. He says, for it is the power of God to salvation. Well, it's, it's God empowered, not man's power. For the Jew first. The people of the Bible in those days, he continues, for the Greek also, the people without the Bible in those days, for it is the righteousness of God. Those are God's standards. They're made in heaven, and they're given to us, and they're defied by sinners. For the wrath of God is revealed. God's displeasure can be known. You don't have to guess. Well, I wonder what irritates God. Well, he tells us. He takes us quite a bit of time, uh, 31,000 uh, verses telling us uh, what irritates him. Well, any, anyway, these things indicate that the thoughts are joined and they're moving as one. Ezekiel, in his great vision of the throne room in heaven, looking at those cherubim moving about the throne of God, he writes these quite 
powerful things. He says, and each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. When they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. That's the Christian life. Well, it was supposed to be. As many as our children of God are led by the Spirit of God, Paul will write in this Roman letter. Now, that was a blend of Ezekiel 1, verses 12, 17, and 20. But no additives, no preservatives, and no MSG. (laughs) Then, offsetting this thought of moving in the direction that God is moving, we have in Romans 2, Paul says, to those who are self-seeking, as opposed to Christ-centered, Christ-led, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, then he adds indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and to the Greek also. That's diversity. All right. Judgment is diverse. It is not interested in who is a minority or not. It will judge the guilty. And what about those who can escape that? Well, those with the blood of Christ on them. And that's what we're going to get to, hopefully, this morning. So now we look at verse 16. And you young Christians, try to keep up. I counsel you. You usually know where I'm going to be on a Sunday morning. Um, Read ahead of time. So you're not playing catch-up the entire time. Oh, what is he talking about? When is he going to be done? Anyway, and that's some of the adults too, right? <laughs> Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. There's so much doctrine here. The trident passion of Paul to get to Rome. It wasn't only Rome. He had the same thing going on for other places. He just writes it down to the Romans. He says, I am a debtor. That's his burden. It it pressed on him. I've got to get the word out. Then there's his boldness. He says, I am ready. That there's eagerness and preparation in that. That's verses 14 and 15 of Romans 1. But now in our text before us, verse 16, we have his belief. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Being ashamed of Christ has never helped anyone. And the devil knows that. So he puts a lot of energy into keeping Christians being bashful about their faith. That's one thing to be led. It's another thing to be afraid and petrified, not moving. That shame is even attached to the gospel is indicative of something wrong in creation. What is there about Jesus not to like? Well, the world comes up with a bunch of stuff. Looking at one definition from the dictionary, a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Well, the Bible covers that very easily, and that's not a criticism of the dictionary. Consciousness of guilt... Guilt is you've done something wrong. Shortcoming. Well, if you die without Christ, you're going to fall short of making it to heaven. If you've heard the gospel, especially. Impropriety. Well, bottom line, sin. 
doing the wrong thing, doing what you're not supposed to do, these things bring shame. You would think, well, somebody's got to set standard for that. The sinful heart persuades sinners, if possible, into excusing themselves and often accusing God. This was Cain, and these are people. Jeremiah the prophet said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't trust it. Oh, my heart. What was God say? Never mind your heart. It might be right. It might be wrong. We want to know what God says. That settles it. Yeah, well, I'm not letting Satan tell me what to feel ashamed of. But he will if you let him. You better have a spiritual defiance about you. Granted, there are some Christians that they, they're bold, but it's not spirit-led. They're just trying to show, see, I'm not ashamed. Well, that's less than ideal. Our quest to be accepted at the cost of avoiding Jesus is a serious matter in God's eyes. So Jesus warns us about this. Luke writes, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. That's a, not a little thing. It's a very big thing. I will not conform to criticisms of Jesus Christ from anyone. That ought to be for every Christian. I will not conform to any criticism against Jesus Christ from anyone. Nor some internal voice of my own disapproving of my faith. If you serve the Lord, you'll get hit with both of those. <clears throat> you will have an encounter with someone criticizing your Christ. You will have an encounter with the voice of Satan in your ear. Your response is to be defiant spiritually, not just because. Not just because, well, I'm a defiant kind of person. You don't tell me what to do. That's not the idea. The idea is because of who you serve. A spiritual defiance. The natural man is the sinner in the New Testament. The man that is not born again. And so I mentioned when someone says, well, it was only natural. Where, you know, yeah, natural in the fallen sense. Shame is supposed to be for the guilty. But guilt before God is to be without Christ. Because we're guilty. All, when we're, we who are saved by the grace of God, we're guilty. We are sinners, but we are saved sinners. And I'm going to come hit that a little harder in a little bit. But <clears throat> those who are guilty without pardon are those who are guilty without Christ. Big difference. Zephaniah the prophet, writing to Jews about their faith, being faithful, said, Yahweh is righteous in her midst, in the midst of the people of God, in the midst of Israel, in the midst of Jerusalem. He will do no unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Abraham said it this way, Shall not the God of the universe do right? God's response to that was, Of course. No need to respond to that. Abraham wasn't dictating to God. He was voicing a fact, a doctrine. Zephaniah goes on, he says, He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings justice to light. He never fails. But 
The unjust knows no shame. Those who are not interested in the standards of heaven are not shamed by the standards of heaven. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He certainly would be shamed, ashamed of himself to commit sin, uh, but not, maybe as you, some of you might take that, not as one beaten down, but one is not, not proud of sin. But shameless people cannot be convicted. Luke talks about this in his gospel in chapter 18, in verse 10. Uh, well, Jesus actually, Luke just writes it down for us. Jesus gave it in the form of a parable. Parables tend to be easier to re- remember and apply. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. Now the people, they respected the Pharisees as a rule, but they despised the tax collectors. After all, they worked for the imperial Roman Empire. He continues, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And that's where he ends it. And then Jesus said, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus gives us the punchline. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he'll exalt you in due time. Don't self, self-esteem is not biblical. Christ-esteem. Esteem the Lord, and he'll lift you up in due time when he's finished with you. When he's finished using those things that were interfering. Now, I don't care for psychological words, but for the sake of time, a sociopath, they feel no shame. They have no regard for the feelings of others, for right or wrong. They use intelligence, they use charm, they use guilt to manipulate others. They have no shame. Lying and harming others comes easy to them, especially if they can take advantage of the innocent and those who cannot protect themselves. The Bible sums it up very quickly, though. I mean, you can go out and, I'm sure, buy psychological books that have whole book, uh, you know, 400 pages on this topic. Or you can read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I like getting to the point, so I'm going to take a little time doing it. Because, you know, you go to, you see a YouTube, you know, how, how to do something in five minutes. And they take 30 minutes to get to the point. And you're fast-forwarding trying to find it. Anyway... The Bible gets to the point. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The wicked have no shame, as Zephaniah said. They can do something about that, but they opt to stay in their wickedness. Now, hypocrisy is an, is an, um, a hypocrite is an actor when they're not supposed to be acting. When the others think they're not acting. That's what a hypocrite is. They act like they mean it, but they really don't, and they know it. It's intentional. If the wicked, though, are not ashamed of their wickedness, why do we find that the righteous are ashamed of the gospel? 
I hope if you have been in that spot where you're afraid to tell your peers, your cow orkers, your co-workers, if you're afraid to say, look, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who died for my sins, who loves me and has prepared a place for me. I serve him, not your opinions, not your culture, him. I don't mean to be sounding rude, but I do mean to spiritually defy everything that is against my Lord. Well, stand by for a counterattack, if that is what you, where you find yourself. We are not to be ashamed. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, he's not imprisoned yet, but he's taken some beatings already. Uh, he's not yet made it back to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, but he stands his ground until his death. And so it is natural to be ashamed of righteousness in a world that is boastful of sin. So if you find yourself ashamed of Christ, understand that is natural. It is not spiritual. It is spiritual to defy any shame attached to Christ. Unfortunately, there are many counterfeits out there, and they attach things to Christ that don't come from him, and we have to learn to discern what needs to be rejected, rebuked, and what uh, is embraced. Now, our Christ, why would I be ashamed? Jesus died in someone else's place. In a literal sense and a spiritually literal sense. He died in the place of Barabbas. Barabbas was an outlaw. He was the one that was supposed to go to the cross. But Christ went in his place. Well, he went in my place and your place too. His dying for Barabbas was dying for me and everybody who's born. Everyone who's created. I have to add that because Adam and Eve, you know, they weren't born. They just were created. Well, he was buried in someone else's grave. Joseph of Arimathea, a righteous man. But still, there was no grave for Christ. He borrowed the grave. Well, the grave is that place of death. And that death is forever if you, are, if you have not the Lord. And so he, he dies in my place. He's buried in my place. And he bore someone else's shame to that public execution. That was my shame. It was your shame. So that we don't have to be ashamed in front of the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah, he writes about this in advance. And I want to hit that when we get to the Jews having the word first. But right now, Isaiah said, this is Messiah speaking through the prophet about his crucifixion. That's over 700 years away from the time Isaiah writes these words. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. Well, when people attack you at Christ, they're spitting. They're spitting out and spewing out all sorts of things that they may think is true but are not. And you want to say, you know, you think you're right, but you're not right. But that's not enough. Paul, he realized the supremacy of Christ, and that made him unashamed. And so if you are ashamed of Christ, remember the supremacy of Christ. He's put you in that place, not for you to be bashful about who you serve, but to be spiritually defiant. That's what the other guy needs. What they're going to do with it is up to them, but that's what they need. You don't get anything from a Christian ashamed of the Christ they claim. 
And any time the world tries to shame you, remember you're not the first one. You won't be the last one. And they can ramp it up very quickly. They can introduce two other things to that. Death, which might not be that bad, but torture. Well, that one's bad. And, but the Christians have faced that. They've faced lions. Remember, the world, they are the ones that should be ashamed of themselves for what they do in the presence of a holy God. The apostles wrote about this, and I'm going to take them out of order because I just want to. Uh, but I'll just read various New Testament statements. The operative word is shame or unashamed. Paul wrote, For this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That's spiritual defiance. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. I know in who I believe and I'm persuaded. That, that persuaded is not, you know, a curious persuasion. That is a committed viewpoint. He can, in another place, he writes to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. Well, we're reading about him saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. Peter rings in on this. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Again, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Now, I know I've been reading some of these over the last few weeks, but they're fun to read again. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that God is not ashamed of us. But now, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Yeah, we want to go to heaven. That's where our second uh, primary citizenship is. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call their God, where he has prepared a city for them. Well, I believe that. I go to prepare a place for you. I believe every word of that. Jesus said, if it weren't so, I would not have told you. Which is kind of tough when you're looking for the promises of God to blossom in your life and then not. Then you've got to hang tough. You have to persevere. The proverb says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Yeah, because they're not ashamed of what they're doing. And that's what Paul is, is boldness. I, I, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. I'm pulling to preach the gospel to you. And so we come now in verse 16 to the gospel. There is no message of Christ's gospel without his cross and his empty tomb. The cross, of course, condemns sin, and it condemns it at a price. God's saying to man, this wasn't cheap. This is not casual. This is God the Son dying for you. The power over sin is expressed in the empty tomb. It's one thing to say, I'm going to die for you. It's another thing to rise up and say, see, I'm in control. No one took my life, I gave it up. And I picked it back up too. The message of eternal life comes through the message of temporary death. And none of us should like it. None of us like to curse. Woohoo, Adam and Eve, glad you did that. 
that would be crazy. Well, it is the power of God. And there is power of God to save or power of God to destroy. Which brings me to Matthew 10. Verse 28. I memorized the Bible, but why should I show off? I have not. <laughs> well, uh, Matthew 10 is in here, I know. Verse 28, you'll know this. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Pretty serious stuff. So the power of God is not something God has. It is part of what he is. God is love. That love is powerful, because God is powerful. Nothing weak about God. In Him is nothing that is unattractive. Uh, if you look at it through the world's eyes, you're going to have a hard time with that. The antidote to that is stop looking, to, stop looking at it through the world's eyes. Receive the revelation. Hear what God has to say about the whole thing. The only justification of the gospel is that it is powerful. And if it weren't powerful, it wouldn't be the good news. Because I need power to overcome what sin has done to me, and just like you. So reading the Gospels, for me, was the power of my salvation. Now, I've met many Christians that have come to Christ from different books, some Ecclesiastes, some Romans, various John's Gospel. For me, it was Matthew or Mark. I, I don't remember which one. I was moving at such a fast pace, gobbling it up. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Not that junk, heresy doctrine of power, you know, uh, positive confession. That is heresy. That is the world's regurgitated positive thinking. Trying to blab it and grab it from God. We believe. We are to ask God for what we need to supplicate. However... At the end of it all, we say, not my will, but your will. Not I claim it in Jesus' name. And sadly enough, th those things are powerless against the indulgences of the flesh. Next time you're facing some great temptation, try that positive confession. Or the next time you, someone is sick or someone is lost in their sins, try the positive confession. It's not what we do. We're spirit-led. We're spirit-fed. We're sons of the king. We take his orders. We don't give him orders. And that whole positive confession thing is all about giving God orders to get what I want. And so they dangle the carrot before the congregations. God wants you rich. Even the socialists know better. Anyway, I mean, everybody can't be rich. Where's it going to come from? It just doesn't. It's just anyhow coming back to this. I've had my, my say for now. He says to salvation. That's deliverance from the final judgment. That's what I want. Hell is the last place a person wants to be. There are no exits. And, you know, there was this idiotic bumper sticker. I haven't seen it in a while. It, just, it said, um, heaven doesn't want me and hell is afraid I'll take over. That's the dumbest thing a human being could ever think. Heaven does want you. God does want you, but he won't take you on your terms. 
And in hell, you aren't continuing whatever you started in this life. In hell, you will be a prisoner. Whatever hell means, it ain't good. In fact, it's very bad. It's, it's so bad that God was willing to die to keep people out of it. So don't make, make no mistakes. You, the person that says, well, I've gone this far without Jesus, I'll make it all the way. You will make it all the way to hell. There's not enough preaching on hell anymore, it seems. People are sort of numb to it. Satan has overused the word. Uh, but when may we be focused and understand there is a real judgment and there is a real place of judgment. Don't be there. The way to salvation is always the same. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. See, that's where we get the Passover from. That's a quote from Exodus 12, verse 13. Anybody here superstitious, believing in some powers out there that have a say-so in your life? The number 13 is bad. Well, verse 13 says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Thank God. Yes, you can applause, but it's not me. It's not me. So let's fake it just for a second to see what happens. <laughs> well, anyway, you know the, 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 the Exodus story. You've seen Charlton Heston acted out, some of you, most of you. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. You will not get the judgment of death. Peter, all the New Testament writers just hold that before us. But I'm going to single out Peter because he just says it so perfectly. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. You weren't bought by a man with money or something like that. From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. He just hits it hard. He says, whatever folklore you've got going on that doesn't come from God the Father, you are following, is wrong. It's damning your soul. And you were not redeemed with those things. Not believing what your fathers believed in, but believing the Father. He continues. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the Paschal Lamb. That's the Lamb of Moses. That was Moses' lamb and the blood on the door was a type of Christ. When John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter just puts it into uh, two verses for us so we can understand. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift received by penitent, guilty people. By people that own it. It's a, yeah, I am guilty before a holy God. He sets the standards. I mess them up. But when he sees the blood of Jesus Christ, he will pass over me in judgment. I will be pardoned from the guilt. You say, that's not a fair deal. What is fair about you going to heaven to God? Ooh, look at you. You're here now. Now we can have fun. Well, there is an element of truth in that. If the blood of Christ is on you, everybody that will be in heaven is wanted by God to be in heaven. There's not, well, you know, really, I was really not voting for you. You, you. you creeped in. No, it's going to be passionate. Not going to be a ho-hum thing. When Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant, it was not a monotone event. It's enormous. J. Vernon McGee says, salvation is not a reward. It is a free gift. Now, those of you who know Vernon, you should be hearing this in that voice of Vernon. 
It says you work for your reward, but not for your salvation. That is doctrinal. Jesus worked, suffered, and died for my salvation. We work and suffer and maybe die for our rewards, but not our salvation. Can't earn salvation. Individual salvation is not to be decided by familiarity with Christ or his word, but genuine surrender. I mean, many archaeologists have, you know, dug up sites that were listed in the scriptures and still remained atheists or unbelievers. You'd think that this evidence would support that the scripture is worth heeding. They were familiar with the scriptures. They're familiar with the God of the scriptures. But they did not submit. Judas Iscariot was more familiar with Jesus Christ on earth than any of us. And yet look what happened. It's not enough to come to church and be familiar with Jesus. Do you have a relationship with him? Have you received him? It means everything. John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That right is inherited. It is not earned. It is something he extends to us. An inheritance comes from someone else. And in this case, it comes from the throne of God. As Savior and Lord. I, I prefer as Savior and Master. That irritates some folks. They are caught up on the whole slavery thing. You need to grow out of that. He is the Master. He has done nothing higher. He's sovereign. I would be terrified of his sovereignty were it not for his love. But he has that love. And that love is a sovereign love in this sense. Nothing can take it from him. For everyone who believes, nothing's going to take that from you. God Almighty's terms are for everyone who believes. You choose to accept it or you don't. God does not ask men to first behave, then believe. He says to believe, we're going to get to that behaving. It's called sanctification. We'll develop that. And we'll come to that in a little bit also when he talks about faith to faith. For everyone who believes, John chapter 3, verse 36, for those who refuse to believe, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God Abides on him. Stays on him. It's just, uh, you know, nothing about that verse is confusing. Hmm, what does that mean? It's very clear. To the Jew first. I love this kind of stuff in the scripture. Three times Paul quotes Habakkuk. He's quoting, well, we're going to get to Habakkuk. Let me not get ahead of myself. To the Jew first. Well, three times in Romans he makes this statement. And only in Romans do we find this to the Jew first and then the Greek. I believe wholeheartedly that Paul wanted the Gentiles to appreciate how God used the Jewish people. Because the Holy Spirit wants us to appreciate that. Many so-called Christians over the centuries have turned against the Jews. I wouldn't want to be them. There's no need for that. Uh, not only is there no need for that, but the warnings are stark. There, there's no mistaking them. The gospel was first given to Jewish apostles. We get to verse 
chapter 3 of verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, Paul writes, because to them were committed the oracles of God. That's just one reason. Since the Jews knew the Old Testament messianic prophecies, it made perfect sense that to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. What we have here is a flow, not an elimination. Not, well, the Gentiles are eliminated. I'm going to the Jews first. I love them more. It's a process. Here it is. Where else would we learn about creation's origins but from the Jews who were entrusted with the oracles of God? How about the fall of man? What about the tactics of Satan? How about the Ten Commandments? This gave this to the Jews first, having the word of God. It had to be somebody. happened to be Jacob's kids. This gave the gospel message the head start it needed to establish itself in a pagan-infested world. How would you preach Christ if you had no Bible? What would you say to somebody? Why would they believe? Well, anything you said would just be hearsay. You, you just, how do I know it means anything? God saw that coming. And so he developed his scripture, not in a day. He could have. He created a you know, visible creation in six days. He could have done the scripture. He could have done it in a day. But when he created creation before our eyes, he said, I'm going to roll this out. Sort of a time release creation. To show us some of his character. He's not in a hurry. Although when it was late on that sixth day, he said, well, I only got like ten minutes to wrap this up. <laughs> and then he made the woman. Don't go after my truck tires, please. <laughs> it's just a joke. Well, no funny joke. <laughs> I know, maybe so. But my mom was a woman. She identified as one, too. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> without the gospel, it would, without the Old Testament scriptures, there would have been no spread of Christianity again. It just, it's hard enough with the gospel John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well who was not spiritually well. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Two things. First is, this was a woman of shattered romances and Christ went after her in love and he got her. The second thing is, when he made this statement, you worship what you do not know, we Know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. When he made that statement, he instantly wiped out every other religion. All of them. In a single swoop. And he affirmed that the message of salvation is passed through the Jews. You should like that. You should, you should, it's an honorable thing to be associated with the Jews of Scripture. They are our brothers and sisters. The Christian faith was born out of Jewish scripture. The church was built on the model of the Jewish synagogue, largely. God's plan of salvation and his revelation to mankind is not random. Jesus didn't just show up and walk out the woods. I'm here. He laid out his steps in the prophets, through the prophets, and then he walked on those steps no one else could do it. You couldn't self-fulfill being born in Bethlehem unless you were the one, the anointed one, which 
He is. The scripture is deliberate. It is supernatural. It is organized. It is pre-recorded. It is documented. And it is preserved. And nobody can stop it. Others have tried to get rid of the Bible. You can't do it. Not going to happen. You can't get rid of Israel. Not going to happen. Then he says, also for the Greek. That's everybody else. It's all humanity God has in mind. So it's not God saying, I love the Jews more than the Gentiles. It's I have a process. And I'm starting here. And I'm going to map it out for you. And nobody can change this. And Jesus commanded his apostles to begin in Jerusalem, the place of the empty tomb, Luke chapter 24, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That gave his critics, the critics of the resurrection, living in Jerusalem, that gave them one more chance to believe. And many did. Israel was the recipient and the custodian of revelations and visions from God as a people. And even even the Gentile, in this case Job, even what he had to say was preserved by the Jews. Without them, we wouldn't have the book of Job. We wouldn't even trust it. There are other writings from Gentiles of that age, and they're not in the scripture. When, Gen- when God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, he's looking forward at Messiah. Matthew 10. These twelve Jesus sent out, commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He restrained them to the Jew first, because he knows what would work best under the circumstances. And we submit. Now verse 17. For those of you who thought I wouldn't get here this morning. Now will I finish. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, this is all a letter to the Romans summed up in these two verses. And he's going to detail it. And we're going to benefit from it. Couldn't go with the last few verses of this chapter. Because it's just so powerful. And if you love the world. Be here next Sunday so we can slap you around. Because <clears throat> he's going to address it from the throne of God. But here we are right now addressing the righteousness. The righteous and the gospel. The gospel Paul is referring to, again, is God made, not creature made. Thus perfect. Righteous means conformity to what is right. Which begs the question, who sets the standard? Well, The kingdom of heaven. The throne of God. That's our standard for right and wrong. Not culture. We don't adapt to a culture contrary to God. We're the salt of the earth. We resist it and try to turn the lights on so they can see the runway. And today's onslaught of rejected righteousness attempts to undo God's way. Revisionists. We're going to revise what righteousness means, what good and bad is. Well, let's look at verses 28. A little peek ahead to verse of the next, what's coming next session. Starting at verse 28, this is the world's standard that he's dealing with, not righteousness of God. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, because they didn't like God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. 
And then he begins to itemize them. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, things. I lost my space. Inventors of evil, things. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. And not only do they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So there you have the perpetrators and their advocates. And God says, I got your number. And I'm posting it. Hopefully, you'll see yourself in that camp and get out while you got time. Like Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out while you've got time. Christianity, or Christendom, I should say, not Christianity. Things associated with Christianity. is rapidly losing its sin consciousness. And unwittingly, they are building the apocalyptic apostate church. You see, when the rapture comes, the righteous Christians who submit to God, they're going to be saved. Left behind will be churches that have nothing to do with Christ. They think they do. It's their Christ. They fashioned him in their own image. Antichrist, you know, you hear me say the devil hates you and that the devil hates sinners. He hates everybody that's human. Antichrist is going to work with the apostate church, and in Revelation 18 tells us he's going to turn on them too. They're Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to trample them. The devil will have his way with those who will not have the way of the Lord. This losing consciousness of God spells doom. Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Say, I don't wear wool, I wear cotton. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> sheep's clothing. Anyway, faith to faith, he says here. I love this because... If faith is planted, it will yield righteousness. You will be better off. You may not be all that you want to be, and others will recognize that. You're not what they want you to be either. Thus critics. But anyway, from redemption to regeneration to sanctification. A process. Again, the world took six days to build. How long does it take to build a Christian? Well, conversion is instant. But sanctification, that's a lifetime. That's a process. So we're redeemed, and then we are spirit-filled, and this can happen together. And then we're sanctified, we're set aside, and then developed. Psalm 84, a pilgrim song, going up to Jerusalem to worship. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And that, that 84th Psalm, they're excited to go worship God as a people. From faith that saves to faith that serves. If all you have is salvation, you got a lot. But there's more that you're supposed to have too. And that is that from faith to faith. Philippians, Paul writes about, what if Paul just got saved? Thank you, Lord. Have a nice day. He doesn't. Who are you, Lord? Salvation. What do you want me to do? Service. Well, he writes, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, following rules, puffing myself up, 
But that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness which is from God by faith, from faith to faith, trusting God. Yeah, choose who you trust. Every time you get in a motor vehicle, you're trusting the other guy's going to stay in his lane. You're hoping everybody's going to stay home. I think. <laughs> Not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mind sharing the road. I just, I don't want anybody within a thousand feet of me while I'm driving. That's my ideal comfort zone. And, you know, I can't, you know, spend a lot of gas staying up at 90 miles an hour to do this. <laughs> as it is written, again, only the Jews had as it was written. Who else had it? No one. Who else? They had other written things. They couldn't back them up. How are ours backed up? They came true. The just shall live by faith. Faith which, which relies on God's promises for salvation. Must rely on Him for everything else, too. You can't, again, you can't say, okay, thank you for saving me. I don't need you after this. No, we need more. Faith, the just shall live by faith, relying on God for service in spite of hardship. There really is no true service without hardship. If you're looking to get involved in the church, and you think it's just going to be this wonderful experience, you're wrong. It's, it's going to make demands on you. Um, you know, I don't like the thing for pastors is if you're not getting hit, you ain't pastoring. Not every day, every single moment, but it comes in cycles. Um, Second Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he told that's a pastor to a pastor. So this great Old Testament, almost done, this great Old Testament quotation from Habakkuk 4 is applied to show that righteousness by faith is not a new concept for the New Testament church. It was there in the Old Testament. Paul repeats it again in Galatians and in Hebrews. Three times it shows up in our New Testament. How many sermons he preached on it, we do not know. But we do know it shows up three times. It is said, and I'm going to close with this eventually. It is said that the great... German reformer Martin Luther, and he was a great reformer. He got in, he went kooky as he got older with the Jews. I disagree with him on a lot of things, but for where he lived and what he had to do, you cannot deny that he was courageous and he had God in mind. And he was, as all the reformers were, were he was a Roman Catholic initially. They protested against the popes in Rome, and that's why they were called Protestants. He's the one that nailed his, you know, 95 theses on the wall there in Wittenberg. Anyway, um, while seeking forgiveness as a Roman Catholic, going up the pilot staircase in Rome on his knees, that, I mean, we won't get into what that is all about because it's just crazy. But and just suffice it to say, step by step, a Hail Mary for each step, trying to earn his salvation, trying to get what he can never get, that way, then God flashed this verse across his mind. It's from Habakkuk, but he, he used Romans. The just shall live by faith. You want to live. You want salvation. You've got to trust me for that. You can't earn it. He rose up from his knees. He marched out of the church of Rome. And he took all of Europe with him. Well, half of it. Christianity burst out from the dark ages of the Pope. And that is one bright, shining moment. And those with Christ 
see everybody without Christ as being cheated, being ripped off by a Satan that lies to them. A life of trusting hearsay has to be overcome by the courage to trust the truth and all the facts that support it. And that would be the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel. May we be bold as a lion, the lion of Judah. May we be led by your Holy Spirit every time for everything. May we not lean on our own understanding. May you be with us. And may we seek you always. If you've been listening and you've not opened your heart to God, you are being ripped off by a very real and invisible spiritual devil. From time to time, his wicked works flash before us as they just did there October 7th in Israel. But other times, he's very subtle. He just wants you not to believe in Jesus. That's what he wants from you. If you follow his advice, thinking it's your own conclusions, then you face the wrath of God because there really is no excuse. There's enough proof to take away the doubts and the questions about the trustworthiness of what God says to man. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior this morning, if you'd like to go beyond being familiar with Him, open your heart, ask Him to come in to be your Lord and your Master from this day forward. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I admit it. I break your laws. I am guilty before you. I ask you to forgive me. I cannot earn my salvation, but I can receive it. And I receive you. I ask you from this day forward to be not only the one that saves me from the judgment to come, but the one who rules over my life and my eternity. I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer in Jesus' name, may they hold to it and never depart. May they not be ashamed of it. And perhaps, Lord, even when the invitation at the end of the service is given, they'll come up and share it with one of the pastors. We pray these things and commit them to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.